Welcome to Agitator. Today on the podcast, we have a very special guest, a man who appreciates sleaze, a taker of naps, an Elroy boy, the editor-in-chief of Apocalypse Confidential, personally my favorite magazine in the world, Blauergeist. How are you doing today? Hey, what's up, guys? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Doing great. I'm good. Doing great. Feeling... Well, yeah. Feeling that uh, Mercury retrograde weather a little bit. Yeah, is that, I've never really understood, is Mercury retrograde, is that always a bad thing, or is it things that are just sort of out of joint and like weird vibes? Yeah, Mercury retrograde is when uh, everything slows down, mechanical shit breaks. So for example, a few days ago my TV, my Roku TV, just turned off and wouldn't turn on for a day. Uh, My wife at her work, all their... All the work they did one day got erased overnight for some reason. Um, so basically, you're not supposed to sign contracts, get into new agreements. Uh, it's a good time for finishing things that you've already started, but otherwise, I mean, it just everything feels like you're walking through mud. I see. That's the idea. I guess that's sort of, well, because not to jump the gun, but watched this movie. I actually watched it on my Roku TV because I very much appreciate you sending it to me, Jay, but I I wanted to watch it on a bigger screen and I didn't know how to connect computer to TV because I'm an old man. And, um, and yeah, and I couldn't figure out the subtitles for it, so that must have been Mercury Retrograde in action. And so basically, I just watched this movie Shinjuki Triad Society like with subtitles off and basically just trying to catch the vibe of what the plot was about based on just the pure action of it and I thought that was a pretty cool exercise. I mean I read like the summary of it so I knew what was going on but in terms of like actual like interactions and shit it was it was like a silent movie and I loved it. Yeah, we're all about that over here. That's that's kind of a trend oh, yeah. with us. Especially when the subtitles are garbage. You're just like, no, never mind. I don't need that shit. Who needs talking? Yeah, we did. You did Ezo and Crow Zero with no subtitles, right? Um, no, Crow Zero had the trash subtitles on that one. There was a Porno oh, okay. Star. I watched Porno Star, and you told me 
Actually, you told me that some of the dialogue is really great, but uh, I didn't really miss anything. I got it. I got it right for the most part. Yeah, yeah. So as was mentioned, we're talking about 1995 Shinjuku Triad Society. This was Miike's first official theatrical release, or I should say, the first movie that was shot specifically to be released in theaters. Uh, Fudo jumped the gun because. Uh, he made that one straight to video, and they thought it was so good that it needed to go to can, where I think it actually placed, which is a, it's a different time. The early, the mid '90s were a different time, but this was the first one, and it's a uh, pretty typical Miike. It's a kind of a yakuza story. Well, I guess in this case, it's a triad story. Um, it's kind of like the way that I would describe it is like it's like the Searchers, but instead of trying to keep someone from being raped by Indians, this guy's trying to keep his brother from doing gay shit. That's basically <laughs> what the movie's about. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's pretty gay. This is a really gay movie. Uh, for first theatrical release, it's like Mike already had his, a lot of his signature styles like at play with the uh, you constantly feeling like you're going to get assaulted by something on screen i watched this one actually on uh on the tv i'm usually watching this shit on some pirate site on my phone or the computer but i own this one and so decided to queue up the the grain intact blu-ray and the whole time i'm just like looking over my shoulder like somebody gonna walk in on this oh, this is some <laughs> some gnarly shit yeah i was blown away by it because sort of i mean i think i've i haven't seen any mikay so like the only exposure to japanese cinema has really you know been the more like stately kurosawa and like a couple of like tokyo drifter and branded to kill like who's that like fusion suzuki or whatever um oh yeah yeah, yeah. and so you know and that's that's sort of more not sleazy but definitely more like sort of like lower entertainment but like it's always had like this sort of veneer of like bushido honor like we may be criminals but there is honor among us kind of thing and so it was incredible to see this movie and just it's like total trash total sleaze like you open up with like like a fucking like decapitated body on like the pavement and then it just goes crazier and crazier from there. And in that way, it seemed like it had, like, a weirdly, I don't know, like, it felt very, like, American in a way. Like, it felt, like, very sort of post-Tarantino, just, like, trash, kind of, like, 1980s, like, gutter neon slime cinema. And I fucked with that. Yeah, it has a uh, grindhouse fun vibe to it I, I love i love that beginning scene where um which felt kind of like a test run for i don't i don't know if you've ever seen the opening at least to like dead or alive uh one of Mike's later movies where it's this rapid fire of just crazy violence and rape and drugs and like over the top shit like right off the bat and this one felt like a test run to that kind of with the fast pace the dj and then the like you know the all the knives and shit 
and people doing drugs and then the the cops investigating this decapitated body and when that one police officer is holding up the remains and the one goes say cheese and he yeah. holds up the head and smiles throws a peace sign it's like you 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 know you're getting a little bit of preamble for what you're in for yeah, there. it felt like an x-rated miami vice episode in that beginning what i love about that opening with the dj that kelby mentioned is when you have movies from the 90s and they're showing you you know like this hard partying club scene and the song that the dj's playing is like you know it's it's this kind of like we've we're post dubstep now so it's just kind of fun to you know think of people in japan in like 1994 going like everybody rage and it's like boom it's like instead of like you know some like real grimy like you know boiler room like basement like techno kind of shit it's like groove is in the heart or something like that (laughs) yeah (laughs) exactly so as kelby mentioned this was a dry run for his classic dead or alive opening which includes a man eating a bunch of ramen noodles and then getting shotgunned in the stomach and the ramen noodles flying towards the screen kind of forming the title this one has a uh a pig head getting decapitated Uh, i thought the kid was taking a shit at first but i don't uh, in as the film goes on i think he's just kind of hunched over um it's got you know the decapitated bodies the club seat all this kind of stuff and we are shown shu who is a kind of a a rent boy who is in this uh, club and he's uh, filleting a man in a stairwell that has a toilet in it and two urinals so that is uh that's one of the weirdest toilets I've ever I've ever seen it's like the liminal spaces Twitter account but with toilets oh 100% as a bathroom design enthusiast that was probably the most horrifying moment of this movie um (laughs) But yeah, it's definitely, yeah, it's, it, it, yeah, it should be like liminal spaces or like, there's a count that's like toilets with threatening auras. Like it would fit right in there. Oh, wow. I was at a pasture party one time uh, and saw a toilet with a threatening aura. It was placed up in a tree. It was this giant oak tree, like just huge limbs and uh, starting like, several feet off the ground it was hard to it was a difficult tree to even climb so i would like just that image of the toilet up in this tree has always stuck with me because of just like how's a how for one and why and just it's just always gonna fuck with me like why is the toilet up in that tree but it's kind of a it's kind of beautiful in a way (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like it should be like a noise rock album cover or something like that. Definitely. There you go. Yeah, definitely. If it wasn't uh, two in the morning and I hadn't been plastered and uh, pre-camera phones, I'd have taken a picture of it, made an album just for the sake of it. People used to do all kinds of fun shit before there were photo ops. I, I remember that. Those were good times when you just kind of did weird shit and it wasn't like, oh man, this is going to be a fire Twitter post or Instagram post or whatever. Let's just put the fucking toilet up in the tree. It's good times. 
days. Yeah, just do it to be cool. Like, just this seems like it'd be fun. And I think that's how a lot of, like, this movie kind of has that attitude about it where it's like, this will be cool. Or this, this would be wild. We should do this. And not really having a, uh, a purpose about it. And part of, I, I mean, so rape becomes a theme of the movie because it's just almost every scene is a rape scene <laughs> or one leading up to another one. But that seems to come out of nowhere in the beginning. Like, just the, the constant assault and penetration going on yeah i um i have thoughts about that so the movie itself thematically deals with um being an outsider in japan so our protagonist tetsuhiro and his brother yoshi or sorry tatsuhito and his brother yoshihito are uh orphan children they are uh their parents are chinese uh but they moved to japan so the movie itself deals a lot with um, the triad which is a Chinese organization moving into Shinjuku and beginning to do things like control the drug trade, the prostitution trade etc. But this whole idea of um, language sort of infecting people, right? Because there's lots of scenes in the movie of people learning different languages. The lawyer in his office has a kind of book on tape teaching him how to speak Chinese um, there's a little kid at one point who's being like hit with a magazine because he doesn't remember how to speak properly uh, this idea of like of, of penetration and insertion of a foreign body into kind of a sovereign state I think that's where all the rape is coming from except for the times when it's just sort of played for laughs like that little midget guy who for some reason, rapes that dude for information. Yeah, these are the worst police. Like, I would not want to get caught up in one of those interrogation rooms. They're like, oh, you don't speak the language, huh? How about I fuck you in the ass until you learn how to speak the language? <laughs> that little guy looked familiar, but I couldn't, um, I couldn't place him. There, there were some other familiar actors in here. Do you know what that guy's from? I don't know what that guy... I know that his partner, who's barely in the movie, is the kind of main character in Itchy. He's the um, the little low-level Yakuza who has to follow um, Kakihara around in that movie. But no, I didn't recognize the little... I guess, I guess we should put some context for this. Um, the guy who's being filleted in the stairwell gets picked up by the cops and pretends that he can't speak Mandarin. He speaks some derivation thereof that they can't put their finger on. Uh, so they try to get him to speak Mandarin by bringing in this little four-foot-tall guy. And there's this, there's this great shot from overhead of the camera kind of zooming towards this little midget guy. Uh, and the midget guy proceeds to get into this kind of... Uh, he's sort of like a judo master or something. But he gets into like this frog position and uh, begins to... <laughs> ass fuck the uh, the Chinese guy until he until he starts talking <laughs> we have ways of making you talk <laughs> exactly. yeah Mike really has no filter for the perverse there's a lot of like experimenting with technique on display here 
with like so many different rape scenes all having a different vibe to them like that one just just being pretty ridiculously funny and uh Mm-hmm. I, I think that's because Mikay just does not have a filter. I would love to be on set with the man to just see how he's like, alright, we're gonna do that. Because he's also a very, like, chill, very uh, polite person. Just, like, what the fuck is going through the mind of somebody like that who is uh, just like, alright, yeah, you, you're gonna do some, uh, some judo moves and then uh, penetrate this not like he's actually penetrating him of course and it's not that kind of movie i guess but yeah you know what i mean just like having no filter uh for what you're how you're supposed to depict something you you get this mixture of of vibes and tones and like you never you can never settle down with a mike film because especially uh this one like it's such an unsettling uh, adrenaline rush because you never know what's going to happen next. That kind of, like, clash of vibes, it kind of weirdly reminded me of, like, a Bollywood movie where it's just, like, a jumble, like, a jumble of different, like, not necessarily genres in this case, but just vibes and styles and just things happening. Whereas I think more, and maybe that's sort of more of a facet of Asian or non-Western cinema in general because, you know, here in America and, like, in Europe, we have this sensibility that our movies have to kind of be about one thing and follow a certain thread and just sort of follow that line from first shot to final shot. But, like, with, you know, Indian cinema and then some Asian movies and stuff like that, there's just this mishmash because they understand that it's, like, people are going to the movies to be there for like two three hours or whatever and so they understand that it's like you gotta bring maximum entertainment in like every frame and so you just throw everything at it exactly and i i noticed this about mike's films before but every character in every scene even if it's a beat scene from any other genre movie he adds some kind of twist to it and it doesn't have to be perverse or absurd i mean the wang wang the bad guy who's a a flasher he's introduced by uh flashing a table full of uh seasoned old triad gangsters he really likes bottled water and he's all he always has a thing about like he puts a a thing of bottled water in like an ice bucket that you'd use for champagne like his whole thing is staying hydrated and then, for some reason, uh, Tetsuhiro's boss is always changing clothes. He's always, like, taking his pants off and putting a shirt on, putting his uniform on. And I think that I think that works in movies really well because we all know what the beats of the scene are going to be, right? His boss is going to tell him, you know, you're, you're out of control. You, need, you know, you've got to rein it in. We're getting complaints. So we, we already know that, but if you give people something to do in a scene, it becomes interesting to watch because it's fucking interesting to watch people do stuff. And hasn't Mikay done, like, a hundred movies? And, like, he doesn't just do, like, Yakuza and stuff. He's done, like, kids' movies and stuff too, right? Oh, so yeah. So he's, like, all over the map in his filmography, let alone just his individual films. 
Oh yeah, yeah. He's done. Uh, his most recent film is Great Yokai War Two, which is a children's film sequel. Um, he's done sci-fi, crime, uh, musicals, comedies. A lot of them haven't been released in the states, um, especially the comedies because you know translation issues. But you know, I mean, it is it you know just that that whole idea of every scene being a self-contained short film itself uh, I think is really interesting as opposed to you know I watch a lot of uh, I've watched all 10 seasons of The Walking Dead now just got decided to, to, to power through that and it's a soap opera with zombies and so a lot of the times when the characters are talking to each other they're standing across from each other and it's these middle shots from like you know midsection up of them exchanging dialogue and I can tell why people got so bored around seasons seven or eight because there's just not a whole lot to look at, you know? Like, the, the, the scenery's not interesting, um, which is something that he does here really well with all the shots from Taiwan. I was thinking about how important that was. Like, it feels like... Uh, I don't, I don't want to go on, like, a movies these days kind of rant, but, like... Go for it. I, Speak but, on know, it. But you yeah. know, like when you have, like you're, okay, so you're really into architecture, interior design, stuff like that, right? I mean, yeah. when when you look at a movie and everything is this kind of Starbucks looking set, because everything in reality is starting to look the same, we're, it feels like we're running low on like cool places to put actors in front of. I don't know. You're in Port, like, Portland, right? Like your PN, PN dubs. Yeah. So, I mean, you could still shoot like a cool movie in Forest Park or something like that. Um, and there's interesting places down to, I used to work at, uh, as a doorman at Fountain Plaza. I don't know if you know where that is. It's like downtown Portland, but there's still some places there that would be cool, but a lot of it's just kind of, you know, it looks like every other place. Does that make sense? Is, yeah, every, am I making sense? Oh, yeah. Everything is sort of flattened out, and, like, it becomes a feedback loop because, you know, for better or worse, our movies are sort of what inspire us, and, like, they're the kind of, you know, externalization or whatever of our dreams, you know, mm. if you want to get grandiose about it. And Let's so go. if if our dreams and the things that, like, inspire us are just sort of looking and like the big thing about it is it's like a lot of these movies especially like the big tentpole ones are just shot in like a green screen studio in like Burbank or something like that yeah and right. so there's like nothing real about it in the first place and so then we take that and we sort of apply that to the real world and then of course then the movies you know, they reflect even the ones that are filmed on location. What is the location going to look like? I mean, it's going to look like fucking, you know, to use the discourse of the other day, it's just, everything is just going to look like a fucking West Elm catalog. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's just a kind of Ouroboros of not even shit, because at least shit is interesting. It's just it sort of gray blob soylent kind of shit 
yeah yeah there's been a terrible trend and just every of course commercial buildings but like um a lot of people being brainwashed by hgtv and shit and catalogs and i work uh construction mostly residential and a lot of remodels people be like yeah we want to tear this wall down and open it up and we want to do the gray click together tile and the gray walls and the white shaker style cabinets with the carrera white subway tiles and it's like okay you want to look like the a, a magazine that's designed to sell you furniture like you you're supposed to, in a furniture catalog you're supposed to just be looking at the furniture to sell like a lot of the rooms and i don't, I don't think this is like a, a good move i think you know there's a lot of interior design like like a lot of the stuff that you shared on your twitter for example is like very in like eye-catching and like uh it's just aesthetically pleasing so i don't think this is like a necessary move on like the catalog industry to be have these sort of bare rooms so that like the furniture or whatever they're selling is the main thing on display but that is kind of the purpose of it right they're just trying to sell something it's like i don't understand why people want their house to look like that well you know to use what the word from earlier and the word we see a lot on the internet it's like basically it's the complete like liminality of everything because the whole you know what liminal means is sort of like the threshold or transitional space and so you know if everything looks like not just not even the furniture in the catalog but like the space just that's like around it it doesn't resemble anything it's like if you looked at a painting and like you were like oh yeah this frame is gorgeous and you're not even paying attention to what the painting looks like mm. and i think another thing that's gone missing is like because like yesterday posted some interior designs by uh, Werner Panton, who's like a classic German interior designer. And what's sort of missing from interior design these days is that it is itself an art form, not just a kind of utilitarian thing to design rooms that we pass through, but that the room itself is a work of art. And so that like even if you know you know because like i think some of the rooms that i post i don't would i wouldn't necessarily want to live in them but the point is that it is itself an artwork to appreciate and be sort of overcome by and it reminds me of psychogeography the books of ian sinclair and will self where like London Overground is a good one by Ian Sinclair, where he kind of walks this five mile uh, loop. Actually, I think it's longer than that. But he talks a lot about how the unique architecture of London is almost a device for, for storing memory and also kind of generating feeling. Alan Moore talks about this in the From Hell graphic novel. He has uh, Jack the Ripper kind of taking some I don't know, some guy around, uh, where did he do all those killings? What's the name of that place? Oh, Whitechapel. Whitechapel, right, 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 right. Yeah, he's taking him around Whitechapel, and he's basically talking about how it's designed with these, uh, you know, 
esoteric, forbidden, uh, Freemasonic kind of angles so that this big church that's in the center of it is actually psychically imposing on the people of Whitechapel to sort of keep them in line. So if you if you fuck with that like I do, uh, you actually believe that uh, you know buildings and their shapes and the shapes that are inside of them are both storehouses for feeling and memory, but also generative. And I mean, if everything starts to look like a a hospital waiting room, I think you end up with people. I mean, that's one of many things that leads people to just fucking scroll the TL all day and just kind of, for lack of something that sounds less dramatic, kind of wait around to die, I guess. But anyway, end rant. Well, because it's sort of like, it's dumb buzzword. I feel like I'm using this qualifier a lot. It's dumb, but, but like the, like the whole like, lexicon of talking about like bodies navigating spaces you know like black bodies navigating white spaces blah 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 right. is like entirely true though um and so even if it's deployed by stupid people it is entirely accurate that we are bodies operating within spaces and the spaces have as much uh effect on us as anything that we sort of internalize and yeah. uh to go back to the movie a little bit that's what i loved about that toilet and urinal in the stairway because at least it's interesting like mm -hmm. the thing about like toilets with threatening auras is like i would rather have a toilet threaten you and assault you and make you know get under your skin than just mindlessly, you know, have that hospital waiting room, like, nothing aesthetic. Right, and the district that Miike shoots most of these Yakuza movies in, which is uh, the Kabukicho disco, uh, disco district of Shinjuku, itself has this great personality of narrow alleyways, a kind of greenish tint, a lot of signs with flashing lights. Um, the night shots are really good with the, a lot of neon reflections and puddles, as you mentioned. Uh, but it does give you this kind of feeling that you're in a, you're in a gross world. Another, another time I got that feeling was when uh, Carrillo, the, the kind of uh, autistic guy who just repeats himself and beats people up, when he's uh, sitting on, a, on like a beach lounge chair uh, on his deck and uh, the girl comes in and spills yogurt on his crotch and then starts licking it off. Um, that space felt very dreamlike to me as well. It felt like very kind of cramped even though he was out in the open. There's a lot of a good shit like that in this. Well, like with the touches of the, the plants and like being on the roof on top of the world but also gated in like by a really tall you know the really tall bars and everything is just aesthetic is purposeful like it, you're I, I feel like we're creating a, a a new chapter in the manifesto which is that like natural coolness uh is good as well as aesthetic psych has like a psychic importance to it it's not just this um 
you know we need to do away with the whole oh, oh it's just style oh, and there's no substance it's like the the style is the substance the aesthetic is a part of the heart and soul of it like that's the shit that actually matters because that affects the people that exist within it and who come into contact with it like it, it affects the psychology of the people is the aesthetic you can't spell aesthetic without ethic it they are intertwined yes that's in yeah absolutely what interested me about that whole part and i thought you know in my you know you know 70s brain i thought that like she was like lick i thought he was doing coke or something and that she was looking coke off of him all of all of that stuff and a lot of the kind of like shots in that area that you're in that movie like it reminded me of the movie city of god a bit and mm -hmm. like all of the kind of like it reminded me like of the asian version or the japanese version of uh favelas and say what you want about like slums like that it's like they are entirely constructed by the people who live there and are on the ground and like they use a vernacular architecture and that is more compelling and you sort of see that in the same way with like Whitechapel in a lot of ways but like that kind of slum vernacular architecture is more interesting because it's actually made by people who live there as opposed to like the 30,000 you know feet view by like architecture firms that all got the same memo about like hospital waiting room aesthetic yeah it I, it feels very east asian to me too uh in general because when i spent time in in seoul in south korea i went on a walking tour of this building that had been like a video game development studio a lot of long narrow corridors with very low ceilings and the sides of the hallways were just packed with old dusty uh, arcade video game cabinets and you would walk past vendors that you know had all this old audio equipment just cramped into a room and I guess they were sitting around waiting to, to sell it to somebody you come out on the roof and you look out and it's all those kind of slums with people who have tarps for roofs and things that were about it basically that neighborhood was about to be torn down to build the same buildings that we see everywhere all the time and it makes me very sad i don't necessarily uh want people to you know stay in poverty it's just that poverty creates this sort of functional need to like you said be able to create your own space and that's necessarily going to have uh, i don't know life you know things that are interesting to look at yes yeah, this odd uh back and forth between uh material and the spiritual because in the material uh the material progressive sense you would want to have better uh or more accessible housing not variety in an aesthetic sense but just a variety of like a, a lot of options and uh filled spaces but that becomes such a mass-produced thing is there's no heart to it there's no design to it it's all the same cookie cutter over and over again and the vibrancy gets sucked out of a place you know i i've 
always felt of like gentrification as like a negative term not one of these things it's like hey let's go in and gentrify the area and make it look you know just like uh san francisco 2.0 or whatever and it's like that's <laughs> just leave the leave the places alone i, I don't yeah yeah know. yeah i um i was curious to shift gears just a little bit about some other impressions y'all might have had about this movie specifically blower knowing that you are one of the elroy boys and you know a crime dude i was wondering how you saw this uh fitting in any kind of associations you might have made while watching it because uh, i know that there's a there's an encyclopedia in there of uh of crime shit it's interesting to me is basically it solidifies the point that like you know it's not like cops aren't versus like gangsters or triads or yakuza or whatever cops are basically just a rival faction in the gang war and that like any you know violence between gang members and police isn't you know isn't an action of like law enforcement really it is itself a kind of perpetuation of gang violence because you know at least here in the states i don't know how things are in japan but like basically you had two options you would either join a gang or join the you know become a cop but like ultimately what's the difference like you have to take new york city for example like where like the sort of classic like ethnic gangs of like the irish and jewish mafias and the uh italian mafia as well but then like the big like polish gang is basically the nypd and so it's all part of a continuum of like the same sort of turf warfare thing yeah polish gangs polish people represent what's up <laughs> uh, yeah no that's definitely that's a theme that uh Miike will touch on in in many of his it's it's such a theme that it's almost not even commented on and that lack of commentary speaks for itself in a way because our hero in this movie for anti-hero might be a better way of putting it i mean he's basically a rapist and uh not really a great guy but there's something kind of going on about organ harvesting of children in it but that's not really seen as a you know he doesn't go john wick and go stop the the organ harvesting from happening he's just more concerned about making sure that his little brother doesn't get involved with as you said the wrong side i'm sure i'm sure kelby has a lot of thoughts on that kelby's a big cop fan he's a, he's a big pro police guy <laughs> no. <laughs> no. well uh yeah no for sure it's like um it's like these characters uh know their place they're not willing to fight a losing battle basically so it's just sort of sticking to like i'm trying to keep my brother on the straight and narrow uh whatever kind of murky definition of the straight and narrow i have uh 
and it's a commentary on ideologies as well that like um just picking a side really because seeing that like like without having the commentary of which one is the best like there's no comment about like who is the good guys it's like they're pretty much all the same to like you know there's no they're all amoral they're all wallowing in filth and the goals of each uh, archetypal character to represent you know the triad or the yakuza or the police force whoever their big goal is to just have their side be the winner those are the best kind of cops though like the best cop stories are the ones where they're just existing in the world I feel like I read a lot of reviews where they kept saying that this was one of back in Mike's more realistic days or whatever and I found that funny because it's uh it's not a realistic movie I don't feel like it's more like it sustains the dream of being a noir it it stays in that crime uh world that it that it develops and it's everything in the entire world within this movie exists with that that crime element like everything about it is gritty sleazy grindhousey noir and I, I think that's uh those are the best kind of cops to have in a film such as this is the ones who are they're gangsters as well because everybody's a gangster in this movie everybody's trying to get theirs and like you know on the elroy thing a great example like the sort of king of the gangster cops is dudley smith who does like literal like drug running and human trafficking like he's basically just a criminal with a badge and uh and yeah, and basically it's like the underworld isn't just a place that is populated by criminals. It is populated by everyone. Do you have a favorite Elroy? Uh, yeah, my, let's see. My two favorites are The Big Nowhere, which uh -huh. is the second book in the L.A. Quartet, uh -huh. and then... The Cold 6000, which is the second book in the uh, Underworld USA trilogy. Yeah, see, I would I would have said White Jazz and American Tabloid. I think those are my those are my two top ones. I uh, I rem I just I don't know if before I read American Tabloid if I'd ever read uh, something that was so kind of economically written, but that that felt so huge in scope, you know, um, and. Uh, I just, I really like, I like the character of uh, Pete Bondurant a lot, too. I think that's one of my favorite, favorite Elroy characters. The Cold 6000 was a, it's a funny story, but the Cold 6000 was my introduction to Elroy, because I, I think I was in the sixth grade when it came out, and uh, I lived on, on an army base on post, and I went to the library, and I read a, a Newsweek or a Reader's Digest, and there was a whole article about how uh, the Cold 6000 starts off with an N-bomb, in its first line, yeah. and I was like, I gotta, I gotta read this book. <laughs> like, and I, I, and I had no, like, my brain was not ready to, to process that. 
but I uh, just just from a stylistic point of view, though, I think White Jazz is a. Uh, I know that Elroy has said in the past that Cold Six that he felt like Cold Six Thousand was as far as he could take it, but I feel like White Jazz is just, you know, it's this small, mean little book, you know, and it just goes right from the start. But anyway, Elroy rants. It's like, well, everybody, it's everyone describes the style as minimalistic, but it really is like sort of like hellagram maximalism because like you were saying it's like this huge expansive book in scope and the style of it like i think one of my uh friends on twitter dawson he described it as like the hard-boiled literary equivalent of what of like uh quantilism i think is how you pronounce it um where it's like the artistic style of just like many dots that form the bigger picture but like if you instead of like brush strokes it's just dots on uh the canvas like pointillism or pointillism right yeah pointillism yeah 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 i also i just i love i love the kind of alternative history because i choose to believe alternative histories just full stop like if it's uh something that is like Alex Jones or, you know, conspiracy related, Joseph Farrell, any of those guys, I basically, I'm all in on that kind of shit. So I think American tabloid was probably my first introduction to that. Cause you know, they have all the tapes of like bad back Jack and, uh, or, uh, and like there was a part in American tabloid where they talk about Martin Luther King jr. Having all these, uh, they have all these tapes of him with white women or whatever. And I remember just thinking like, what? No, like, you know, like these, uh, it's fucking wild, the kind of sacred cows, you know, which each one in its own isn't huge, but I started being like, oh man, I, I choose to believe that this is real, you know, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll live in the fictional world. Well, it's, as he describes it, it's like the hidden infrastructure of public events and sort of my line <coughs> about it is basically and to kind of go to the psychogeography point, it's like all of that stuff, like parapolitics or conspiracy theory or like hidden history or whatever, is to uh, history or current events as urban exploration is to architecture, because oh, like wow. you have the you have like the official kind of what's on paper and like what you can see in front of you, like you know the you know, hospital waiting room, to use that example again. But then you have, like, all of the weird, like, maintenance tunnels and, like, stairways and shit like that and, like, weird, like, roof access doors that you're not allowed to go through, but, like, they form a bigger picture of the building that you're in. And entertainment should be this more urban exploration. I think one of the worst things that happened to crime, because I've been in the, in the crime fiction world for a long time, yeah. and I, I truly hate a lot of those fuckers. Um, but like, th- there's just been this obsession with realism, you know, and attempting to. Um, it's not that I have an issue necessarily. I used to have a real big issue with grittiness because I was, you know, I thought it was too easy you know, poverty porn, things like that. But what I really have an issue with is this uh, fidelity to how things really are in the world. Because um, I was working on a novel and I call, I have like these people who I call when I'm stuck with stuff, you know? 
and I called uh, Jordan, my friend Jordan Harper, who's a, he's a big Elroy head too. He was, uh, he made the, he shot the pilot for the LA Confidential show that never got picked up. Um, and I was like, dude, I can't, like, what would they actually do in real life? I'm stuck here. And he was like, dude, they're not, they're not real. They're, they're characters. Like, you can make them do anything that you want them to do. And that was like such a light bulb moment for me. Uh, so the point, the broad point I'm trying to make is that realism in fiction, I think, is a terrible, terrible thing. And that things should get more surreal, like Shinjuku Triad Society, because we do want that vivid and sustained dream. We want that urban exploration. We don't want like the approved, uh, you know, brochure that tells us where to go. Yeah, I wonder if they started going wrong, like if creators started going wrong and picking up on what was working, but like they picked up the wrong tool. Because uh, something that works is like trapping you in this environment and making it feel real to you. Like you forget that you're dreaming. It's like that experience where like you once you wake up once you once the movie's over you're like oh yeah i start explaining that and i guess that sounds ridiculous it made sense while i was there you know but like it it's not it's not trying to like take reality and put it on paper put it in a movie it's like just sustaining that it's doing escapism with a straight poker face like yeah because Shinjuku Triad Society feels very escapist, but they play it so straight-faced, like un- unflinching, unblinking, to where you just buy into this world, like you just feel a part of it, like this is this is what's happening. Like as long as you play by the rules that you create for yourself, and maybe that one rule is there are no rules, then you like the viewer or reader will give you permission to do whatever the fuck you want to. And like, there's this mistake. I think that they mistake that kind of gritty hard boiled style with realism when really like hard boiled and noir is more surreal. Like to take Pete Bondurant and like American tabloid, like he's, he's like doing stuff in that book that like, no human can do he's like fucking mickey rourke in sin city or something right but because but because it follows the sort of acid logic elro in the elroy demon dog sensibility he is allowed to do that and remind when you mentioned bondrat there there's a a further distillation of that character have you ever read in the miso soup by rio murakami we have not. No, actually, I think I have it, but I haven't read it yet. It's good. It's about a, a Japanese tour guide whose client is this, you know, Hawaiian shirt-wearing, boisterous American, who uh, gets into a lot of trouble and turns out to be partially made out of metal. Um, so it just kind of takes it to this kind of cyberpunk extreme. But it's a good book. All of Murakami shit is really good. Piercing's also good, and Coin Locker Babies and and shit like that i um before we wrapped up the movie talk and the show i did want to ask a little bit about apocalypse confidential uh oh sorry so what are your 
what kind of stuff are you publishing? What made you want to start doing this? I'm just, I'm kind of curious now because uh, I was looking at it and it's good, which uh, mm-hmm. is, <laughs> he says, yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but man, that's a weird thing. Okay, like that's a that's a strange thing in these days for lit mags to to actually be good and interesting, and it filled my heart with joy. So you can take any of those threads that I just dropped and run with them, but I kind of just want to talk about your magazine a little bit. Oh, I I am happy to talk about it as long as we want. Um, yeah. How did I get start? Well, that. I guess easiest way is the name comes from Apocalypse Culture, uh, the Feral House essay uh-huh. collection, yeah, and uh, L.A. Confidential, um, you know, Elroy Classic, and so it's the kind of twinning of those two kind of transgressive and like sort of hard-boiled kind of hidden history aesthetic, and like the main thing that's like. I kind of wanted, like, the sort of mission that I wanted to do with it is I wanted to do kind of, like, sleazoid pulp fiction. Basically, I wanted to do, like, a marriage of sleazoid pulp fiction with, like, weird, like, sort of critical essays, and that's, like, you know, like, critical theory essays and stuff like that, like basically if Nick Land had been inspired by the movies of Stuart Gordon Mm -hmm. like Reanimator and stuff rather than the original Lovecraft Um, and like because I think one of the things that you see a lot on a lot of lit mags especially of the kind of this side of Twitter kind of thing is a kind of Neo Bukowski Welbeck kind of like fucking modernity is a son of a bitch kind of thing um which has its place but like I'm more interested in like straightforward like genre fiction in that kind of sleazoid pulp mode yeah no that's great to hear and also like that was like the thing about like urban exploration uh you know parapolitics being to history as urban exploration is to architecture is like a sort of lodestar of our kind of like outlook on the world and there's an anecdote that i love that i feel like is encapsulates the whole apocalypse confidential worldview which is like in the early 2000s parisian police were doing some weird training exercises in the catacombs which that first of all is kind of weird um mm-hmm. maybe like to find like people who get lost or something so they were in the catacombs and then they started hearing dogs barking and like snarling and stuff like that and they get closer to the noises and they realize that the dogs barking and stuff is an audio loop played mm-hmm. by some they recording devices they can't see and they come upon like a kind of room in the catacombs that has a like a full on like movie theater and bar and 
and you know there's no one down there but like the, it's like a full on theater bar with like you know graffiti of like you know a big tent graffiti of like communist symbols and neo-nazi symbols and all that shit and they're like what the fuck is this and so they leave and then come back oh and then the other thing is like this room had like a full-on functioning telephone line mm-hmm. um and they leave and then they come back and everything has been cleared out the telephone line has been cut and there is a note that says do not try to find us right. and yeah and like i think it was done by some weird like art collective thing but i feel like that combining of aspects like literal underworld and cinema and weird hidden history and fringe politics and like police crime stuff is like the encapsulation of the apocalypse confidential worldview yeah you couldn't make a more enticing pitch to someone like me than that i've always uh i've been really into crime fiction all my novels are crime fiction and i've always loved uh parapolitics and the kind of surreal elements of david lynch films um and you know i always wanted crime to be a little bit weirder like you were saying earlier a bit more surreal um but i couldn't find anything like that it was you know the surreal stuff was always the goofy um semi-retarded angle right like uh you know it's a it's a screwball comedy but he's a you know that kind of uh, beach read type crime fiction. Mm-hmm. But I always, you know, I kind of wanted a, you know, language that kind of grabs you by the throat and the kind of understanding of pacing and plot and, you know, just the music of the words itself, but with a little bit of more of a bent towards the weird with a capital W. So, yeah, uh, yeah man. It's fucking tight. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, I I love it. I'm a big fan of Apocalypse Confidential. Um, I think it it has its own uh, Mike spirit to it in that sense of just having this conglomeration of... This is something that David and I have talked off-air recently about is that the best art isn't something that's an imitation of say Elroy like it's not like the next Elroy isn't going to be an Elroy 2.0 the next Polinic isn't somebody who just is obsessed with Polinic it's the best artists come from being into an eclectic mishmash of shit that then distill that into their own unique aesthetic and I think that all the wild shit that you just threw at the wall describing Apocalypse Confidential is exactly what's so enticing about it. It's its own thing because it's this huge conglomeration of these other really cool things. Oh yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, what you just said, a funny story, I used to read like Revolver Magazine because I would want to read interviews with uh, like System of a Down and Corn and stuff like that. And I remember once an interview with Serge Tonkian from System of a Down, and they asked him for him and Darren, the the guitar player, songwriter of the group, they asked him for their influences. And I was reading that, I was like, oh fuck, I'm gonna I'm about to see how the sausage is made, right? Like, how do these guys make these insane, weird, hard songs? And whether they were trolling or not is up for debate, but they were like, oh, we like the, the Bee Gees, 
and you know some obscure Armenian folk artist and I remember thinking huh I guess there's really you know they're singular right they mixed everything together and that's always funny when it's like you hear about like these like hardcore crazy like punk or metal people and then you talk to them and it's like yeah our biggest influence is steely dan yeah <laughs> steely dan's a big one i hear steely dan all the time but yeah uh, any final thoughts on this before we sign off on the movie what stuck out to me after the end of it and after sitting with it a little while i think it's an empathetic movie actually i feel like you know it We've been waiting in the nihilist pool for a long time, and this sort of felt like it had a humanist message. It was primarily concerned with being entertaining, but especially because this is like, sort of, for Mike, it's it's a big shot. It's like, you know, this is going to theaters and everything. You're with the big dogs now. I, I feel like it has a humanist, like, uh, element to it in, in making everybody complicated and interesting and like fucked up with their own desires their own personal drives like um it, it's not like an everybody is actually good at their core or like a both sides type of movie like i'm not saying it in like that sense but like in a Sort sort of in the way that Wang, when he's crawling over to his little fuck boy, whenever he's dying because he wants to hold his hand before he like breathes his last breath, is like, even this wackadoodle sort of monster is like, human, like like it's just it's 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 a movie that explores humanity in a really guttered, seedy, sleazy fun and trashy way.